You can turn in your Bibles to the 22nd chapter of Luke's Gospel. We're going to take the first 18 verses this morning, and while we're getting there, and if we don't have PowerPoint, we'll just uh, go without this morning. While you're getting there, I want to remind you that the Lord Jesus is now on the first day of the last day of his time here on this earth. In other words, he's about to be arrested. He is nearing Gethsemane. He is about to be tried, executed, buried, and resurrected. So we're at the very end of his time here on earth. And we're just skipping the PowerPoint this morning, so you're going to have to deal with it. (laughs) Thank you, Lisa. It's not you, it's the bad, so I don't know what's going on there. This morning, one last Passover. And as we look at this passage, I want you to see how it begins here in verse 1. And it says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. It's very important for us to remember the message that Jesus is going to send to the disciples is distinctly Jewish, and it is distinctly messianic. He is going to speak to them in a way that is absolutely prophetically pushing forward into the lives of the Jewish people. Remember, the disciples are largely Jews. And so this message that he is now going to give is going to be one that is out of the Passover itself. And for us, we have to also remember that he is, in fact, the Passover lamb. That this personal attention to the details here, this would have been Thursday night, It would have been a special Sabbath. It would have been Shabbat Shalom. It would have meant to the Jewish people this high holy day directly preceding the normal Sabbath, which would have been Friday, which allows for us to have him in the grave for three days and nights. The Jewish way of reckoning a day began at sundown. It ended the following day any portion of it. So if you made it to sundown, it was considered a day. And so Jesus now is on Thursday night. He's with the disciples. And the Passover itself is going to be focal in their time that they'll spend this evening before Jesus heads to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. He's going to undertake this feast. And for us, everything about the Passover Seder speaks to us as Christians, of the precious Lamb of God. And I want to also remind you that the Passover meal was not invented by Christians. So it was not reverse engineered to make it look like it portrayed the life of Christ. It was assembled by Jewish rabbis beginning in about 532 B.C.E., before Christ, and they dictated what would be in the Passover meal. And it would be that meal that Jesus would celebrate with his disciples. Our Bibles don't fill in all of the details, 
but the Mishnah does fill in what a Jewish Passover would have looked like. And so when it says Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples, he would have not simply taken a cup and bread, he would have celebrated the entire Passover Seder with them. And so as we pick up this morning, and now the feast of the unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so grateful this morning for your word. And we thank you for this amazing picture that will unfold before us. And we ask that you would strengthen us to receive this message. We pray that we would hear from heaven on the true meaning of these events that Jesus would have undertaken. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that not one Yacht. Not one tittle of your word shall pass away, but all of it shall be fulfilled. And so, Lord, speak to us this morning, we pray. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The Passover, in some ways, was Israel's kind of birthday celebration, if you will. And it was treated much like a joyous birthday festival. It was to celebrate, of course, what you all know occurred in Exodus chapter 12 as the children of Israel were in bondage in Egypt. They were literally delivered from that bondage in Egypt. They passed through the Red Sea and they were passed over by the angel of death that night. And so you can read that whole passage there. And as that feast unfolded as it was a reminder of that deliverance, it centered around a couple of things. One of them was the spreading of the blood of the innocent lamb on both the doorposts of the home and the lintels of the window. So that blood was spread both horizontally and vertically on the windows and the doors of the house. And so as that blood was put on the house, as the angel of death came through the encampment of the children of Egypt, and wherein the Israelites dwelled in bondage, when it saw the blood on the doorposts and on the lintels, it passed over. So they literally passed from death to life. And so this picture that the children of Israel would have brought to this time was one of a hasty retreat from this land of bondage. And when we come to Christ, we come instantaneously by believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? It's like that. And for the children of Israel, they were told in Exodus 12, and again repeated really in Ephesians 6, is a picture of it, that you were to eat Passover, interestingly enough, there in Exodus 12, with your cloak tucked into your belt and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. So they were to eat Passover ready to go. They weren't to eat Passover kind of sitting around, lounging around. They were to eat Passover, the Seder, ready to move out. And as God went through the land, destroying those who had put the Jewish people in bondage, taking their firstborn, 
The children of Israel were passed over and they then escaped. And so you can see that the Lord was setting them up to receive uh, this wonderful picture that would come later through this wonderful ceremony known as, as the Passover Seder. During that period of time that Jesus is writing in, and, and this is recorded from, as Luke would record these words, there, there were probably between 100 and 200,000 lambs that were slaughtered in the, in the land. And the reason for that is if you were the head of the household, there was one lamb required for a, at the very most 10 people. And so the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, writing just a decade or so after this day and time, said that at that time more than 200,000 lambs had been slaughtered in the land of Israel. And so there were millions of people in the region of Judea at that time. They were all over the hillsides, they were everywhere, and everybody was engaged in a singular thought process It's Passover. And so as Jesus begins to set forth this meal, it was not just the bread and the cup. And so I want to go through that meal with you this morning. What Jesus would have been done, because it says they're celebrating the Passover, not just communion, which to us we celebrate communion. We celebrate the bread and the cup, but that is not all that Jesus would have been doing. And so here's a little quick tour for you, if you will. The first thing that would happen at the Passover meal is that the head of the home would walk into the home and would announce that it was time for all of the leaven to be removed from the house. And normally, the children would be sent on that journey. And they would go through the house, and we would call it common yeast. But to the Israelites, the leaven was the one lacking thing in the unleavened bread. Amen? Because they did not have time to make their dough and then let it rise. And so leaven was the ingredient that was taken out at the Passover, and it represented the old life, the bondage, the sin. And so you would have had the disciples, no doubt, go throughout this upper room, remove all of the leaven. And what they would normally do is after the leaven was removed, the father of the house would go through the house with three things, a feather, a spoon, and a small bag. And as he went through the house, if he found even a speck of leaven, he would take the feather, scrape it into the spoon with the feather, then dump it into the bag so that the leaven was never touched. You are to be holy people separate unto God, says the Lord. And so the leaven would be removed. No sin. That was the first step in preparing the house. And remember... Jesus didn't invent this ceremony. It was invented by the rabbis. They put it together based on what God had instructed them. And and so as they would take the next step, interestingly enough, it was the washing of the hands. The hands would be brought to a specific laver. That laver, they would rinse their hands. They would then hold their fingertips down and drain off as much water as they could. And then they would hold their fingers up towards the Lord, allowing any water that remained on their hands to drip off of their elbows 
so that they did not touch the dirty water. And then they would take a white linen rag and wipe their hands, representing holiness. So now their hands are clean. First, their lives are clean. Then their hands are clean. And I want to remind you, remember what Jesus did? You see, because the Jewish people, in essence, when you, when you look at it, their, their hands could have been dirtied by the world. In the disciples' time, literally where they walked was dirty in the world. Jesus cleaned their feet with that same bowl. They would then next bring the lady of the house into the house. If there was no lady, a man could do that task. And they would then light the menorah. They would light the candles. Those candles were representative of the fact that Scripture said in the book of Genesis, not in the New Testament, that there would be the seed of the woman would bring forth the light of the world. And so they were looking for the light of the world. So the woman would light the candles in the room. And as she lit the candles and the room began to be filled with light, it was a sign one day, for they shall call his name Emmanuel. Amen. God with us. And in John's Gospel, what does it record? God with us. Emmanuel. I am the light of the world. And so even in the Seder, as the candles were lit, the light filled the room. The fourth thing that would happen would be the repeating of the Hakdah. The Hakdah was the account of the story of the deliverance of the children of Israel out of bondage. And so in the midst of these preparations, sin has been removed from the room, sin has been removed from the person, and now the story is going to be told of what happened. And so the story would just unfold before them. And all of that would be done to keep Normally, the children's attention. Interestingly enough, the disciples are there. The story would be told to keep the children's attention. For they were God's adopted kids. Amen? And so as they would hear that story, they would be recalling what was going on in their lives. The next thing that would happen would be the very first cup. There were four of them. And as that first cup was brought out, As the Seder began, as the meal began, they would recount this. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who has created the fruit of the vine. They would begin by saying, in the beginning, God. So the Seder, once the meal began, began with God. didn't begin with man. And it also didn't begin in sin. Pure, cleansed. The story's told, and the story begins with God. They would go on then to the second cup, and the second cup is a very interesting cup. And Jesus would have had all these things in that room celebrating Passover. The second cup he would have picked up, and as he took that cup, he did not drink from the second cup, because the second cup was the cup of the plagues. And every time one plague was announced, remember there were ten, you would dump one drop of wine out of the cup. Because we have received the goodness of God, while others have received the wrath of God. 
And so, in essence, we have come to Christ in that beautiful picture. Our joy is actually sometimes diminished by the suffering of the world. Amen? Ever experienced that? Ever had a tough time having joy because the world is going through so much tribulation? If you could have watched the events this week unfold in France, was your heart not pierced? Can you imagine what it was like, no matter what your political leanings might be, that there was great suffering in the world? And so the Jewish people would see that wine dumped out, and each time remembering all the things that the Egyptians went through, that they did not go through, that ultimately resorted in them being set free. For the wrath of God has not been appointed unto us, but unto salvation. Amen? You see, these things were all picturing going forward. Next, the seventh step, and I want you to notice this, it is the seventh step, was a very strange thing called the Afrikomen. The Afrikomen was actually a small, little, looked like a waist apron, like you might get at Home Depot. It had three compartments in it. In those three compartments were three pieces of matzah. In that little tiny bag, the middle piece would be taken out, it would be broken in half, wrapped in a linen cloth, and then hidden somewhere in the house. The other piece put back in. And as that would happen, it left kind of the picture in the Jewish people's minds that someday that brokenness would result in a return. And we'll get back to this in a moment, because it actually is at the end that that peace becomes very, very prominent. They would then begin to take place, take the meal itself. And the meal had a number of different components on them. Very, very quickly, there was a pile of small greens, normally parsley, but they were very bitter. How many of you have ever eaten a parsley on your plate? Not a real good thing, is it? Sometimes it would be a type of wheat, it could be a mustard weed, it could be almost anything, but it had to be green and it had to be on the plate, and then it was taken out and then it was dipped in salt water of all things. So it's already bitter and it's dipped in salt water and it represented to anyone doing it the difficulty, the bitterness of life is very often shrouded in tears. And so when they took the greens, it was reminding them it was a tough time in Egypt. And there were many tears. They would then go on to this interesting thing on the plate, which to this day speaks to the average Jewish person, what we would call the hard-boiled egg. It would be on the plate. And it reminded them that there was no lamb to be had after the temple was destroyed. Because there was no place to offer that sacrifice. And so in its place, an egg looking forward, hoping that one day that would be the egg that would rebuild the temple. And so here they look at this, this egg. And then there would be the bitter herbs. Usually, interestingly enough, that was ground horseradish. I don't know how many of you have eaten actual raw ground horseradish. But when you take that with matzah, the one thing that you can understand is that you immediately, almost immediately, begin to weep. Amen? 
Your eyeballs just start to drain for some unknown reason. And as they partook of that bitter herb, remembering that our experience here on this earth is very often in bitterness because we're enslaved. It was their place when they were in in Egypt. And now they're set free. So they're reminded that they, they too themselves were set free from bitterness through tears. And then came a little tiny lump, and it's interesting because it almost looks like uh, Play-Doh, if you will. It's called the Charoseth, and it was made out of raisins and dates and honey, and was brown and kind of a gooey substance on the plate. And as they would partake of that, it was sweet, it was pasty, but it was also made in haste. And so it reminds us of sometimes our, our sweetness of our labor as we undertake it, is also affected by the difficulty of what it takes to make that sweet labor. Now, if you remember, as they were in Egypt, they had to make bricks without straw. Amen? It was mud. And so it reminded them of the mud, and yet God was still good to them, even when they were in trouble. And so as Jesus does these things, and then on the edge of the plate would be the shank bone of a lamb. Interestingly enough, that shank bone was never cut, it was never broken, it was whole. And not a bone of him shall be broken. Amen? Isn't that what your Bible says about the Messiah? You can kind of see how, it's how, why would a Jewish rabbi do these things? Because they were referring back to what Isaiah said about the Messiah. And so as Jesus' legs are not broken, don't you wonder about how many people that week had celebrated Passover and as they're looking, because John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as Jesus is on the cross, can you imagine them? I wonder why they didn't break his legs. And they remembered the shank bone on the plate. And then back to that little piece of matzah cracker that was in that third pouch after that meal was finished the greens the bitter herbs the charoseth the shank bone the lamb meat after they'd partaken of all these things then the children would be brought back into the room because it got kind of boring almost like this is right now it kind of got to that place to where the meal's almost over and everybody's looking at each other okay what now they would send the kids out after that one piece of matzah wrapped in a white linen cloth. And whoever found it came back and got a gift. Whoever found the broken centerpiece of matzah got a gift. The best gift. It was the One gift that only one person would get because they got the best gift. You see, as they were doing all these things, can you imagine Jesus looking around at the disciples? Boy, I hope they get it. I I don't know who found the centerpiece of matzah in the Afrikaman. I don't know who found it. We're not told. But I wonder, maybe it was Judas. You ever think of that? wonder what's going on in his mind. And of course that piece represents the pierced matzah wrapped in white linen who is our best gift. Amen? 
So you can see how as Jesus is undertaking these things, when he finally gets down to breaking the bread and the cup, which the cup, the third cup is coming next. So when they bring back this one pizza matzah, which is the best gift, and it was wrapped in white linen, and it was hidden somewhere, wasn't Jesus' body hidden? Wasn't it a gift? And then all of a sudden they come to the third cup. Now, we're going to see next week when we get to verse 20. In the same way, after supper. Now, is that important to you? Tells you after supper he took the cup. So which cup is it? There's two before. There's two after. After supper, the first cup he takes is the third cup of a Passover Seder. And as he begins to drink from that cup, it represented the the cup of redemption. It was the cup that was drunk from when they got on the other side of the Red Sea, after they'd passed through into life. That's what that cup represents. Now you see the reference for us. For the Jewish people, here's Jesus, the two cups are already gone. He's dumped out the pain. He's dumped out the suffering. They've looked at all, he's gone through the bitterness. The peace has been returned that is the gift. And they're saying, now what next? The cup of redemption. And it is from that cup that he sups, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the remission of sin. This wonderful picture. That's why Jesus said, as often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. He's the third cup, the cup of redemption. The fourth cup, the final cup, was interestingly enough the one that Jesus would have drunk from next. And they were literally four separate cups that were used and then a final cup that was not used. The fourth cup was the the cup of Hallel, the cup of praise. Do you remember what the Gospels say? Jesus, when he'd taken that cup in John 17, it says that he then offered up that great high priestly prayer. That while he was going to Gethsemane, he was praising God. So the fourth cup was the cup of praise. Jesus was praising God the Father, all the while preparing himself for the cross. And then the fifth and final cup, very interesting cup. It was the cup of Elijah. At the Seder, there was a place setting set for Elijah the prophet, the Elijah who is to come. They were looking for that final one who would come, who would be the Messiah. And at the end of supper, someone, usually a child, would go to the door, they would open the door, and they would yell, Elijah is not here! They would then take that cup, and they would pour it out. Because no one was to drink of it until Elijah, who is to come, is with us. And they would put it back on the table. The whole thing is a picture of Jesus. Amen? Every last bit of it. So as the events of the next day occur, everything that Jesus did 
would have come back to their minds almost instantaneously. He's the Lamb. He's the cup of redemption. He's the middle, broken, hidden piece of the Afrika man. It's Him. Remember that the next time we take and partake of communion. We're not quite doing the whole thing. But we're celebrating the best parts. Amen? Verse 2. A date with the devil. And it says, Then the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. And then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. And so he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and the captains on how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. You you see what we find in these words is what had been foretold for centuries. Really, more than a thousand years was now about to come. The whole purpose that Jesus fixed His eyes on Jerusalem, that as Isaiah said, He set His face like flint. He could not be deterred. He was going to Jerusalem no matter what happened. The Lord Jesus was going to Jerusalem. It's because that time was God's plan. It was not an accident. It wasn't mankind finally coming up with sufficient evil to overtake the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Jesus didn't lose that day. He wasn't defeated that day. And in fact, He was victorious that day. You see, the Sanhedrin was moving in on the Lord Jesus. Strange group of people. In the Sanhedrin, there were actually 71. The number 10 times 7, which is the number of completion. So 10 times the number of completion plus 1, which represented God, which was the high priest. And so in all of these numbers, are looking at it. Well, you know, we're 10 times as great as the normal number 7. And by the way, we have the very voice of God, the high priest, with us. It was they who were coming after Jesus. And they were doctorates of the law. It's interesting. Basically, you had 71 Jewish attorneys who would come up with a plan to capture Jesus and kill Him. But they couldn't undertake it themselves because they, noticed this, feared the people. Because wherever Jesus had gone, it had been incontrovertible proof that He was actually the Son of God. That he was God incarnate in human flesh because the things that he had done spoke that he was actually God. What were they going to do? Take him out? They needed someone else. They couldn't do it themselves. And so they elicited the help of Judas. And really what they were actually doing was listening to the voice of Satan. Judas became the emissary, if you will, of the evil one himself. 
as the Sanhedrin met in that circle, as they got together and pondered these things, they would begin to vote. And the Sanhedrin was gathered in a semicircle. There were two court reporters, one on either side of the high priest. And they would begin with the youngest person, and they would vote on every single thing. There had to be a quorum of 24 votes, 2 times 12, also a number of perfection to the Jewish people. And so two times they would have to reach 12, the number of perfection. And as soon as there were 24 votes, that matter was settled. And so they went around the room, beginning with the youngest. How do you vote regarding Jesus? Guilty. How do you vote regarding Jesus? Guilty. It was interesting, because if you were being accused of a capital crime, you could be found guilty and then executed the same day. But if you were not guilty of a capital crime, like sedition, you could not be found guilty on the same day. Jesus was falsely tried, falsely accused, and falsely found guilty. Jesus was too popular. And so it says, Luke writing, that Satan entered into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being one of the twelve. And in the absence of the multitude, he begins to speak. Notice what Jesus does next, and we'll end with this this morning. And so he promised and sought opportunity to betray him. And to them in the absence of the multitude, and then came the day of the unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. He's speaking of the Passover lamb, isn't he? Because that lamb had to be killed to be eaten. That lamb had to be killed to remove its shank bone to put it on the plate. The lamb had to die. And so Jesus was examined. He came into town on Sunday, didn't he? Passover began that day, that Passover week. It said that the Passover lamb, the book of Exodus declares, would be examined from the 10th to the 14th day. What day is it? It's now Thursday. That's four days. From the 10th to the 14th, Jesus is in the temple being examined by the people. Is he spotless? Is he blameless? That was the requirement. And so the Passover lamb has now been inspected. And he sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. And that would have been the whole Seder. All of it, everything we just looked at. And so they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you've entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, following him as you will into the house where he enters. Now this is a very unusual thing because men did not carry pitchers of water. And so it would have been very easy to spy out. And even to this day, if you go to Jerusalem, the city that he's referring to is the city of David, the city of Zion, which is below the city walls today. It would have been incorporated in the old exterior walls. It would have been part of the city. And the springs of Gihon there, the tunnel that was dug by King Hezekiah, still there. You can still go into it. 
You can wander down into Warren's shaft, and you can actually still see the massive amount of water that would have fed the city of Jerusalem. They would have gone from there through the water gate back into the main city. And any man carrying a pitcher would have stuck out like a sore thumb. If you see a dude with a jug, follow him. And wherever he goes, go with him. And then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher, and that word there is Rabboni, the master. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he will show you a large furnished room, and there you will make it ready. And so when they had found it, just as he had said to them, they prepared the Passover. They began to put all of these things together. They were in the room ready to go. You see, he was there to die. It was all the plan from day one. From Genesis all the way to this time, Jesus had come to give his life a ransom for many. And so as they saw that man, they came from that prosperous area where the water was dispensed. And they went to that upper room and they began to meet with them there. They took out all of the things. They, they put the Afrikamen there in the middle of the center table. Remember that this wasn't a long table. Unfortunately, Leonardo da Vinci was incorrect in his long table. It would have been a triclinium. It would have been probably three of them, maybe even more. But they would have put it in the center position on the table, the dining table. And there it was as they were looking at it. A piece to the right, a piece to the left, a piece in the center. That center piece would be broken, wrapped in a linen napkin, and hidden. And then would be brought back to them with great joy for a great gift. They celebrated Passover. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, and we pray that you would just continue to speak to us through these passages as we now approach your trial, Lord, as we will come there and we'll meet you in the garden, we'll go with you to Pilate's and journey with you as you institute the Last Supper, Lord, as you will share communion also with your disciples, so grateful for these pictures, God, that bring us near to your heart. Lord, that Jesus, being the sinless Lamb of God, came into this world, that the world through him might be saved. And so, Lord, we bless you. We praise you. We thank you, Lord, for your life, which was given for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. Let's